Our Father, as we come to your word today, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would uh, illuminate the text for us. Help us to understand it. Help, it to, help us to see how it applies to us and what changes may be necessary in our lives as a result. Teach us, Lord, to see your will, to know your will, and to desire to do your will for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, today is the first Sunday of the month, and every month on the first Sunday, we are doing a study in the parables of Jesus. The other weeks, we are going through the book of Genesis, but today we are in a parable. Uh, So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 12. If you've got one of the Bibles from out in the foyer, it's page 871. Luke chapter 12 is where we're going to be studying today. And of course, as we're entering into the Christmas season, this is the time of year where we're going to be bombarded by Christmas songs. And the one that that kind of struck struck my mind as I was thinking about this sermon is, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And you know what I just did? I just made that song play in all your heads, didn't I? We all know that song, we all hear that song. In fact, for the past couple of years, uh, there's been a, a commercial that's played that song as, uh, you know, for, for their product. And every commercial is an attempt to persuade you. Every commercial is an attempt to entice you to buy something. If you really want to boil it down, every commercial is an attempt to make you covet, if you think about it. So here's what I want to start with. I want to start with a question. What would make this the most wonderful time of the year for you? What would make this the most wonderful time of the year for you? Is it getting stuff? Because that's the implication of that commercial. When they're playing that song during their commercial, their hope is that, yeah, you're thinking it's the most wonderful time of the year because I'm going to get stuff. I'm going to get all these things that I've wanted all year long and so on and so forth. Is that what Christmas is about for you. What is Christmas about for you? And what would make this the most wonderful time of the year for you? Imagine that, hypothetically speaking, because kids, it ain't going to happen, but imagine that you got so much stuff for Christmas that it filled up your whole house. And you had no place to put any of your stuff. And every, every bedroom, your living room, even your kitchen, it's overflowing with all the stuff that you got for Christmas. Again, kids, that isn't going to happen, so don't get your hopes up. But would that be your idea of the perfect Christmas? Would that be your idea of the ideal Christmas? What is Christmas all about to you? Now today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Traditionally, this has been called the parable of the rich fool, uh, but it could just as easily have been named the the craziness of consumerism or uh, the pitfalls of prosperity. What is prosperity? Well, prosperity means to have a lot of something, but in our mindset, it especially applies to things like stuff, or money, possessions, things like that. That's what prosperity is. The Bible doesn't condemn prosperity. I want to start off by saying that. 
The Bible doesn't condemn prosperity. The Bible never says that it's necessarily bad to have a lot of stuff. The Bible doesn't necessarily condemn prosperity. What the Bible does condemn, however, is loving or desiring anything, anything in the world, more than you love and desire God. And that can be money. That can be stuff. That can even be your own family members. Anything can become an idol. Anything that we put in our hearts above God. So today, we're going to be looking at this parable. The, the context actually starts back in verse 1. If you look back in verse 1, we read this. In the meantime, which means that this is continuing, and we're going to get to that in a second. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, thousands are gathered around Jesus on this day. The, the, the term indicates that there are 10,000 plus people out there probably. Scores of people, more than you could possibly count. So thousands, there are thousands of people gathered around Jesus. And you see that it says in the meantime, which means, like I said, it's a continuation. If you look back at chapter 11, what you'll see is the Pharisees had accused Jesus of doing works, of doing miracles by the power of Beelzebub. In other words, what they were accusing him of was being an agent of Satan. And that was a major, major turning point in Jesus' ministry. From that point on, the way that he dealt with the Pharisees, the way that he approached them and spoke with them was completely different. And often after that, he would tell parables that were designed to hide the truth from them. Not to reveal truth, but to conceal truth from them. And this was just prior to this sermon that we're about to see him preaching. And what we see is that immediately, he's got the Pharisees on full blast mode. He's got them on full blast mode. Look what he says in verse 1. He began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, if you don't know what leaven is, leaven is the stuff that you put in bread and it works its way through the bread and it causes the bread to puff up, causes it to rise. In this case, he's saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He's using a figure of speech, but what is that leaven? What is it that starts small and works its way all the way through? Hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, we should understand what hypocrisy even is. What is hypocrisy? In a nutshell, hypocrisy is empty religiosity. It's maybe doing the right thing on the outside, but inwardly, you've got the wrong motivation. Your heart's in the wrong place. You're not doing it for the sake of glorifying or pleasing God. There's something else driving your actions. And so the Pharisees, for example, were hypocrites. Jesus, in fact, at one point in his ministry, you'll probably remember, he called them whitewashed tombs. What's inside of a tomb? Death, right? And so he's saying that you are this beautiful tomb, but there's nothing but death inside of you to them. Why? Because they were hypocrites. They would 
talk right. They'd, they'd talk like they were godly people. They would act supposedly like they were godly people. Everything about them, the way they dressed, it was all designed to put on an outward show an outward mask, an outward facade that was different from what was really going on inside of them. They were doing, apparently, from, from the surface level, they were doing the right stuff, but their hearts were wrong. Their motivation was wrong. They weren't doing what they did for the sake of pleasing or glorifying God. No, they were doing what they were doing because of their love of money and because of their love of power. So those were the two driving, main driving forces for the Pharisees. What does a hypocrite look like today? Because there's, there's really a, you know, not, a, not a, a, a certain figure that we would expect a person to look like if they are a Christian. At least, there shouldn't be. Uh, so, so what does a hypocrite look like today? Well, they're a little harder to pick out, but the hypocrite goes to church, for example, for some reason other than to please or glorify or worship God. The hypocrite prays to God for some reason other than having communion or fellowship with God. They read their Bible for some other reason. Maybe they go to church because they want to be entertained. Maybe they go to church because they want to hang out with friends. Maybe they want to go to church because... Somebody is going to ask them about it, they're afraid, and they want to be able to make a good impression on that person. And so they go, but they don't go for the right reason. They go for some reason other than to worship, please, or glorify God. And that should cause us to think for a moment since Jesus does say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. We want to make sure that that's not us. If we're followers of Jesus, we want to make sure that that's not us. So, it's a good time for us to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, why am I even here today? I mean, it's even possible for pastors to be hypocrites. Sure, pastors can get up and, and go through the motions. Just get up and do what they do every week and the rest of the week live like God doesn't exist. It's possible. In fact, it happens. Guys get thrown out of the pulpit all the time for stuff like that. So what brings you here today? That's what determines whether or not the leaven of the Pharisees has taken root in you. The next thing he warns them about is fear. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Cast, or fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then he goes on. This is very interesting. In verse 7, then he says, fear not. Well, what's that supposed to mean? Is, is he contradicting himself? No. Listen very carefully to what he's saying. He's saying that if you suffer from anxiety, he's saying that if you suffer from fear of what tomorrow brings, the cure to your anxiety, the cure to your fear is to fear rightly, to fear God, to fear the one who has authority and sovereignty over what tomorrow brings. 
That's what he's saying. Why was Jesus able to speak so boldly against the Pharisees? Time after time after time. He was, he was more than happy to, to speak uh, very negatively about them right in front of them. The reason that he was able to do that. He had courage, yes. But his courage is rooted in the fact that he desired to please God rather than please men. He desired to please God rather than to please men. And so he wasn't afraid of men. He wasn't afraid of what the Pharisees might think if he spoke the truth about them. He wasn't afraid of them. He knew that it's better to make people mad but please God than it is to please people and make God angry. So first, he talks about hypocrisy. Second, he talks about fear. Third, look what he says in, in verse eight, verses 8 and 9. He's talking about the importance of confessing Christ. He says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges Me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies Me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Would you agree that all of these things are really, really important? Would you agree that everybody who's there needs to be paying attention to what he's saying? Keep in mind, there are three types of people there. Number one, there are the people who would side with the Pharisees. People who were maybe there to trap him. They knew that the day before, the Pharisees had accused Jesus of being an agent of Satan. And so some people may have shown up for the sake of hearing him prove, uh, give evidence to the fact that he was an agent of Satan. In fact, we see that happen several times throughout the Gospels. There will be people who show up for the sake of trying to trap him. The Pharisees were known for doing that. That's the first type of person that was there. The second type of person that was there was the disciples. The disciples, the twelve, as you will, uh, the twelve who were, were closest to him, whom he personally interacted with on a daily basis, they were there. And then there were people who maybe hadn't made their minds up about Jesus yet. Maybe they weren't sure exactly what to think of him. They, they knew what the Pharisees had said, maybe. But they wanted to hear what he had to say. So who is Jesus preaching to here? Well, he, mostly he's preaching to the second two groups. He really doesn't have a whole lot to say to those who have already rejected him and sided with the Pharisees at this point. Again, when they said that he was an agent of Satan, that was a, a major turning point in his ministry. So he's telling these people, including people who haven't made up their minds yet, some very important things. Life and death, heaven and hell are hanging in the balance on Jesus' words. Which is perhaps what makes it, I'm not sure what word to use for it, disgusting, surprising, revolting, maybe it's not too surprising, that somebody interrupts him right as he's reaching the height of this sermon. Look what we read in verse 13. We read, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me in the middle of a sermon. 
Now, we've got, what, 50, 40, 50 people here? Can you imagine 10,000 people being here and one person shouting out, interrupting the whole sermon? Noel's back there nodding her head. Yeah, because that would be you, right? That's what's happening here. This man has gold in front of him. He has treasure before him in Jesus' words. And yet... And yet, he's sitting there thinking about how desperately he wants a piece of the pie. He's thinking about his God, but he's not thinking about the God of the universe. He's thinking about money. Now, we don't know what the situation here is. We don't know if this man was actually owed money by his brother or not. We don't know if his brother had possibly swindled him. That's a possibility. Is it possible also that, that, that he wanted to swindle his brother, that he wanted to cheat his brother out of some money, that he just wanted, maybe he had a, an attitude of entitlement, thinking, I, de- I deserve this? We don't know. We don't know exactly what was driving this or what the situation was, but that's not important. The thing that we need to see here is that this man is so focused He's so preoccupied, he's so distracted by his material wants that he is neglecting his spiritual needs. And we would be wise to take note of how dangerous that can be. To get so distracted by our material or physical wants that we neglect our spiritual needs. That is extremely dangerous. You are walking a very fine line when that happens. If this man had come to Jesus saying, Jesus, how do I receive a heavenly inheritance? How can I receive an eternal inheritance? How can I receive an inheritance that will never perish? Jesus would have had something to say to the man. Jesus would have been able to help the man. Jesus would have told the man what changes might need to take place. He would have told him to believe. Believe and follow. Like he did to other people when they were told by Jesus what was necessary for eternal life. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do these things and you will live. Right? Parable of the Good Samaritan. But that's not why he comes to Jesus. He doesn't come to Jesus seeking a heavenly inheritance, a piece of heavenly inheritance. He comes seeking a piece of earthly treasure. And so this gold, this treasure that's before him, he hasn't even been listening. Instead, he's been sitting there thinking about his God, about his desire, about his material wants. And look what Jesus says to him, verse 14. But he said to him, Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? There's a very important principle here. And that is that Jesus does not accommodate idolatry. Jesus does not accommodate idolatry. And this man is an idolater. Instead of hearing these words from Jesus, 
the importance of professing Him, the importance of not being a hypocrite, the importance of fearing God, instead of hearing those things, he's sitting there thinking, I just need a break in the dialogue here so that I can get my foot in the door with Jesus and tell Him what I want. Jesus does not accommodate idolatry. And that's one of the things that Jesus wants this man to know. That He's not a puppet on this man's hand. He also wants this man to know that His kingdom is not of this world. See, if Jesus were to honor this request, He would have to do so on behalf of the Roman Empire, which would make Him an agent of a worldly kingdom, which might prove what the Pharisees accused Him of in the previous chapter. But Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world. I am not an agent of Rome. So the first thing he wants him to know is he's not going to accommodate his idolatry. The second thing he wants him to know is that his kingdom is not of this world. The third thing he wants him to know is that he's a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. Because while he's in the right place at the right time, he's there for the wrong reason. His motivation is completely wrong for being there. And this, again, should cause us to examine ourselves. Why are we here? What are you here for? And so in response to this request, Jesus is going to tell a parable. But first, He tells us what the parable is going to be about. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, And he said to them, he's speaking to everybody, but really this is directed toward this man, but this is applicable to everybody. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions possessions. Why does Jesus say be on guard? There are very few things that Jesus says be on guard about using very strong language, and he's using very strong language here. We don't think that coveting is that bad, as evidenced by the fact that there are commercials, you know, every 15 minutes, and honestly, we probably don't even wince when they come on, even if it's something that we covet. Now, let me make a a clarification here between wanting and coveting. There's nothing wrong with with wanting something necessarily. Coveting is when you base your happiness on something that somebody else has, something that you don't have yet. Somebody else has it, you want it, and you're not going to be content until you've got what they are in possession of. Whether that's by buying it, or stealing it, or cheating somebody out of it, whatever. So Jesus says, Be on guard against covetousness. The thing we have to understand about covetousness is that God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over the entire universe, every molecule in the universe. He's sovereign over it all. And if God wants you to have more, you will have more. If God wants you to have less, He'll take away. That's what Job said, right? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Either way. Job wasn't going to covet. And so, 
To covet really means to be discontent with what God has in your life. It's saying, I'm not going to be happy until God, hold, until God gives me something. So really, you're, you're kind of holding God hostage in that sense. And so Jesus says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I can't think of a verse in the Bible that is more contrary to the spirit of Christmas in America by the culture's definition. That's the, the antithesis. That's the exact opposite of how so many people in our culture feel. See, it's possible, especially at Christmas, to get so much stuff for Christmas that you actually miss Christmas because you miss the essence of it. And this isn't just a hypothetical situation. We know that this is a reality in the world around us every year at Christmas. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now he tells their parable. And by the way, he could have just as easily been, been uh, saying the same thing to us at Christmas time, couldn't he? He tells the parable. Let's read it in verses 16 to 21. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, it's almost like he's interrupting him here. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this man has what most people would consider to be a pretty good problem. He's got so much stuff that he doesn't know what to do with it. He's got barns already, but the stuff that he has is too much for his barns. This year that this is taking place, hypothetically, he got more stuff than he'd ever gotten before. His harvest produced so plentifully that his barns were stuffed to the gills. No room for anything else. And so he has what, what most people in our culture might consider to be a pretty good problem. And so he thinks to himself, what am I going to do with all this stuff? And his solution is to build a bigger barn. Kind of like what we do with our homes. We've run out of space in our smaller homes, so oh, it's time to get a new home. We've got so much stuff. He's going to build bigger barns. And look what he says then. He says, and then I will say to my soul, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Do you get what he's saying there? He's saying, I'm not going to be happy until I have this. I'm not going to rest until I have this. I'm not going to be content with life, with my portion in life, until I have a place to hoard all my stuff. And God interrupts him. God interrupts him and says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Very similar to when Jesus said, What is the point 
of gaining the world if you lose your soul. But it's interesting that God calls this man a fool because that's a term that's very rarely used by God towards somebody in Scripture. One example of a place where God calls somebody a fool would be uh, Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, right? Toward atheists or people who deny God's existence. And so, is this man an atheist? We don't know. He's hypothetical. But maybe he's supposed to be an atheist. It's more likely that he's not, since in Jesus' culture, in Jesus' time, Everybody had a god of some sort, whether it was Zeus or some Greek god or Jesus. And so there's, there's probably a pretty good chance that he would have believed in some kind of god, but he didn't believe in the god of the Bible. He didn't believe in the god who created and who sustains all things. We would call him a practical atheist. He believes that God exists, and yet he lives his life as if he doesn't. As if God doesn't exist. That's practical atheism. Living your life as if God doesn't exist, while simultaneously giving intellectual assent to God's reality. So that's probably what he would have been. At the very least, the very least we can say is that this man loved his stuff. And he loved his stuff more than he loved God. And God calls him a fool. So we should ask, why is Jesus, why is Jesus or why is, why is God here calling him a fool? Well, there are three reasons that I could come up with this, that this man is a fool. The first reason is, look what he says back in verse 17. What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? Really, they're his. He might have possession of him, but make no mistake about it. The earth is the Lord and everything in it, it all belongs to the Lord. And you might say, well, you know, he went out and and sowed the seed, right? You know, he, he, he did his work out in the field. Okay, who made the seed? God did. Who made the ground? God did. Who put the nutrients in the ground? God did. Who made the rain come down on the soil? God did. It's all God's. It's all God's. And yet this man holds the attitude that they are his. And that's a common attitude, I understand, but we have to understand as God's people that everything that we have, any prosperity, anything that we have, including the shirt on your back, it is all on loan from God. Everything ultimately belongs to God. And this man thinks it's all his. And so as a result, he's thankless. He's thankless. He's got an abundance. He's got more stuff than he knows what to do with. But he's completely thankless toward God. He doesn't give God an ounce of of credit for one second. He is completely thankless. That's the first reason he's a fool. The second reason he's a fool is because he's got all this stuff and he doesn't even think about using even the smallest portion of it for the sake of glorifying God. 
the question doesn't even cross his mind. How can I use what I have for the sake of glorifying God in my life in some way? It's as if God doesn't even exist as far as he's concerned. So he's not thankful to God. He has no desire to glorify God with what he has, with what God has given him. And third, the thought apparently never even crosses his mind, how can I bless somebody else? How can I bless somebody who is less fortunate than I am with all this stuff that I've got this year? No, this man is completely self-focused. He's completely self-centered, which is the very antithesis to being humble and following Jesus and living selflessly. The gospel is a call to live selflessly. And this man is a fool because he's thankless, he doesn't desire to glorify God, and he doesn't even think for a second, how can I bless others? Instead, what he thinks to himself is, boy, I sure have a lot of stuff. Where am I going to hoard it all? What a horrible curse for him. It's a curse. All this stuff that he has, it's a curse. It's not that stuff is bad. It's, it's not that it's wrong for him to own this stuff. No, in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created everything that Adam and Eve could possibly ever need. But he didn't give them everything that they could possibly want. And so, Adam and Eve made the mistake of becoming so focused, so preoccupied, so distracted by their wants that they neglected their spiritual needs. God made everything. Does that include money? Yep. That includes money. Money in and of itself isn't bad. Money is the root of all kinds of evil. But money in and of itself isn't bad. What makes it bad is what's in us. What makes it bad is when we desire money or riches or treasure or fill in the blank, anything more than we want God. And that is one of the consequences of the fall into sin in the garden. All prosperity is from God. All prosperity. We are a very prosperous nation. You guys, did everybody drive here to work? Maybe a couple of you may have walked. Everybody probably drove to work, not to work, to church today. Do you drive to work? You're prosperous. Do you have a car? Do you have a home? You're prosperous. You're more prosperous than most people in the world. We are a very prosperous nation culture. The question is whether prosperity is a blessing or a curse. What's the difference between prosperity being a blessing or a curse? It's what's in you. It's what's in your heart and where that is valued in your in your chain of values in your hierarchy of values, where does your stuff, your money, whatever, where is it in your heart? Because if it is more important to you than God, if you love your stuff, your money, more than you love God, 
It's a curse. It's a curse. God has given you more and more of your idol. More and more of your God. That's Romans 1. He hands people over. They, they, they turn away from Him. He hands them over to their sin. And so, if you are prosperous and you love your prosperity, you love your possessions, you love your stuff more than you love God, then it's a curse. On the other hand, if you rightly value God above everything else, if He is your treasure, if He is what you value more than anything else in the world, then the prosperity that you have is a blessing. It's not that God has handed you over to something that's going to pull Him farther away from Himself because that's what you want. No, if you love God rightly in comparison to your stuff, your prosperity is a blessing. But it can be one or the other. What about the rich young ruler, you might say? He had a lot of stuff. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, go and sell all your possessions, and then you can follow me. And there are some people who would take the view that that's normative, that he, that's a command for everybody who wants to follow Jesus. But yes, Jesus did say that to the rich young ruler. That is exactly what was required of the rich young ruler if he was going to follow Jesus. But let's also be mindful of the people to whom Jesus did not say, you must sell all that you have and then you can follow me. He didn't say it to Nicodemus. When Nicodemus came to see him in John chapter 3, he didn't say, hey, Nick, you know, we can have this conversation, but you know, if you're going to follow me, you've got to sell all your stuff. He didn't say it to the Samaritan woman at the well. Right? He didn't say it to her. He didn't, say it, he didn't even say it to the woman who apparently had a lot of money because she bought an expensive jar of perfume that she anointed him with. So apparently she did have quite a bit of money if she could afford this perfume, but Jesus didn't say that to her. He only said it to the rich young ruler. Why? Because Jesus does not accommodate idolatry. And for the rich young ruler, the thing that was standing in the way of him following Jesus truly was his stuff. Because he loved his stuff more than he loved God. Which is exactly why the Bible tells us, Mark tells us, that he went away sad when Jesus told him that. He went away sad because he was thinking the cost is too great. I, I can't give up the stuff that I love the most. So yes, Jesus said it to the rich young ruler, and maybe he would say it to us if our stuff is our God, if that's our idol. The tragedy of this parable is that it's not about a man who's going to have a lot of stuff for a lot of years. The surprise here is that it's about a man who's about to die. This is about a man who's about to lose everything that he has. Mid-sentence practically. This is the story about a man who is standing on the precipice of hell. 
This is a man who's standing on the threshold of eternity, and he's about to take that final step over, and all he can think about is my stuff. What am I going to do so that I can keep all my stuff? This man doesn't know that what he needs the most isn't this stuff. What he needs the most isn't a barn, a bigger barn. What he needs the most is somebody who can stand before God in his place. He needs a substitute. A sinless, perfect, flawless substitute who can stand in his place and bear God's wrath against his sin in his place. But instead of storing up crops and stuff, food. Ultimately, what he is storing up is God's wrath against him. And that's the tragedy of this story. It's tragic. He's about to die. But he doesn't know it. And the truth is, neither do we. We don't know when our time is either. It could be five minutes from now. It could be five seconds from now, technically. It could be whenever. We don't know. And so the importance of getting right with God and living right before God and fearing God and confessing Christ, the time is now. Because we don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know when our time is. We don't know when we're standing on the precipice of eternity. But we will have to stand before God. The question is whether we will have a substitute. And only Christ, only Christ qualifies to be a substitute. It's foolish to treasure riches above God. It is foolish to treasure riches above God. So if that's what the fool does, what does the wise man do? What would the wise man do? Look at verse 21 with me. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The wise man is rich toward God. He's the opposite of this hypothetical, parabolic man. The wise man is rich toward God. And so the question you might have is, well, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be rich toward God? It means that God, it means that Jesus is your greatest treasure. And so it doesn't matter what tomorrow brings. It doesn't matter if the stock market crashes tomorrow. It doesn't matter in your heart because you think, you can take that away from me, but there's one thing that you can't take away from me, and that is my salvation because it is firmly grounded in Christ Jesus. He's the one who bore my sin. He's the one who gives me a right standing before God. And so, Jesus is your greatest treasure. It doesn't matter what else you'll lose because you, knew, you know that you're going to lose it all eventually anyway in one way or another even family members. To be rich toward God means to love and to desire and to treasure Christ more than anything else or anyone else. That's what it means to be rich toward God. And so this Christmas season, I would urge you
first, to seek first the kingdom of heaven. And to make Christ your greatest treasure, not just in this season, but always. But this is the season where we remember what Jesus did for us. We remember that He stepped down out of eternity, the eternal, sovereign God who created and sustains all things stepped out of eternity and He took on flesh so that He could walk among us, so that He could live among us and He would live a sinless life. He would be the only one to live a sinless life. Fully God, fully man. The hypostatic union. Fully God, fully man. And He would die. He would live the life that we should have lived sinless. And He would die the death that you and I deserve to die. And as He was on the cross, the sins of His people would be imputed to Him would be transferred to Him. And He would take His people's sins upon Himself and He would bear the wrath of God against those sins in their place. And He would transfer His righteousness in exchange to them. That's what Christmas is about. It's about remembering how desperately we needed and need a Savior. So enjoy your stuff. Enjoy your Christmas. Enjoy all your presents. Have fun with them. But keep them in check. Don't make them your earthly treasure. Don't be consumed with consumerism. Be consumed with Christ. Don't be consumed with covetousness. Be consumed with Christ. Make Him your greatest treasure. And then you will be rich toward God. And that is much better. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank You for Your Word. And thank You, Lord, for giving us clarity and insight into the dangers of covetousness, especially during this Christmas season. Lord, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, we would turn away from all covetousness, that that by the power of the Spirit, we would be able to be on guard against all covetousness. Teach us, O Lord, what what it entails, what it means to make Christ our greatest treasure. Teach us, Lord, what it means to be rich toward you in order that we may glorify you, in order that we may live for you, for the glory of Christ. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. 
Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.